This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Click to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm a host here at Click to Listen, and I'm also an assistant editor. I'm joined, as always, by Mark Galley. Hey, Morgan. What's up, Mark? What's up? It's just been beautiful in this area recently. Mm-hmm. I went to a picnic, went fishing, did lots of things over the weekend, painted. Today when I woke up at 6, though, I was really sad because it wasn't bright outside. You know? Yeah, it was a little bit different today, yeah. All right, so who's joining us? Joining us today is Andy Olson. He's our relatively new managing editor for print at Christianity Today. We're really excited about having him here. He has uh, formerly uh, worked with... Uh, International Justice Mission. Before that, he was with Latin American. Is it Latin America or Latin American Mission? Latin American Mission. Latin yeah, American Mission. Latin American Mission. Yeah. So he, he comes to us with a, just a tremendous amount of international mission experience, and he's going to bring that to bear in this, this show because of a really fine, fascinating article he wrote in the uh, July-August issue for us. Hey, Andy. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Mark. It's good to be here. Tell me about your history in radio. My history in radio, while you are looking at it, this is about the extent. Radio debut? Uh, Yes, but way back in the day when I was a business journalist, I reluctantly did some TV interviews. Uh, Actually, it's also on the topic of immigration, coincidentally, but since then I've taken a hiatus, uh, and I'd say I have a a face that's better suited for radio, so this is the perfect medium. (laughs) All right. Well, we're glad that you are joining us today. So immigration, as Andy alluded to, has been a hot topic in American discourse for some decades now. Earlier this week, the Trump administration backed a proposed Senate bill that would dramatically reduce legal immigration to the U.S. The debates and news stories discussed to what degree and under what conditions we should welcome new immigrants. But from the church's perspective, there's another story that needs to be told, and that is how immigrants, legal and undocumented, are changing the nature of missions here and abroad. Some missiologists predict a bold and significant impact for these efforts. So I'm going to quote from Andy's article. To some experts, these immigrant-led efforts look like the future of missions. They are informal and highly relational, operating outside legacy mission structures. They are, to a degree, an extreme version of mainstream evangelical mission projects. So here's one example. Taken as a whole, immigrants form the largest aid force in the United States. They build houses, cover medical bills, put kids through schools, and put food on the table for millions back home. The money that immigrants send back home dwarfs all other international spending by government, humanitarian groups, and missions organizations. So today on Quick to Listen, we will discuss the conditions that catalyze this movement, what challenges the movement faces, and what North American mission organizations can learn from these immigrant models. So before we pepper Andy with questions, we are actually going to just remind everyone that you can subscribe to CT, which is what makes this whole podcast possible by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. And since Andy is here, I've asked him to just kind of give you a tease of what's going to be in the September issue. Yeah, we are uh, really excited, Morgan, about our September issue. We have a good mix of of stories coming up, uh, including a debut from a new columnist, Sandra McCracken, who I'm super thrilled is going to be writing for us. She, as we all, uh, as we all know, a fairly well-known recording artist within the Christian world, um, who just is a brilliant lyricist and has just deep, in, deep insights, particularly inspired by the Psalms. So we're excited about what she's going to be bringing to the issue. 
Otherwise, we're, top of, we're, we're talking on a whole broad range of things. Uh, as, usual. As, as usual. As well we should. Yeah. We're talking about some racial reconciliation issues. We're talking about uh, oil wells in Los Angeles and a whole host of other things. So we're excited about what's on offer. All right. So everyone might be saying... It literally, August just started. Why are we talking about the September issue? Well, actually, we work really far ahead on our issues to make sure that they get into your mailboxes that soon. And so that's kind of why we know everything that's going on. we're already already editing the October issue, believe it or not. And working on our goals for November and December. There you go. All right. So again, you can get the magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen. And you'll also get a download of mine and Mark's and fellow CT podcast home Richard's favorite articles as well. So Mark, this is like a weird one to have a gut check on, but I'm actually thinking it might be helpful just because I don't know if you've like heard the story before Andy wrote it. And so maybe, you know, when he flew back to kind of work on the story a couple months ago, you can take me to your reaction when you heard about it. I think I had a reaction. I wonder what this story is about because I just wasn't familiar with it. And in reading it, reading it during the editing process and rereading it this morning to get up to speed on it, I still find myself flabbergasted at the extent, the depth of the missionary involvement of immigrant churches here in America. It's just amazing. Yeah. I think I was similarly like not aware when it's tied to stuff like remittances that seems a little bit less surprising since we know just how many billions of dollars go out of the U.S. Well, some of us who are well-read might know that, but for a person who's oblivious to that, knows it's happening but doesn't think about it, to hear it documented in the story was amazing to me. Okay, I was just giving my reaction. (laughs) Not judging you for your reaction. I'm just trying to tell you, you're more well-informed than most of us. Well, I read a lot of these remittance and stories, so... Anyway, but Andy, we're happy to have you on to so I can pepper you with more questions. This is like the conversation I wanted to have with Andy about the article. All right. Well, Andy, the better question here, and let's start with this one, is like, how did you become initially aware of this story? Yeah. Uh, so I had been looking into uh, actually the topic of remittances uh, and in particular this idea that, you know, it's, it's not First a new... First of all, what are remittances? Let's yeah, make sure yes. our readers understand Thank that. Thank you, Mark. Funny yeah, word. So remittances being uh, funds that, that immigrant communities... Or and an immigrant household send back to their sort of countries of origin. So money that's sent from households, in our case, we'll talk about in the United States, uh, back uh, overseas. And so remittances within the development international development community are uh, sort of this one of those sort of hot topics be, because of the sheer volume of money that's that's sent from families back home. And as we mentioned in the story, yeah, it sort of dwarfs sort of private uh, private charitable contributions to aid, and even it dwarfs sort of uh, U.S. foreign aid. Or, Overseas, so for a long time in the international development community, there's been this fascination with uh, what are ways that money that's being sent by families back to their homelands uh, can be used better, if you will, right? Uh, sort of a subjective question, but uh, what are ways that it could be put to best use for the you know sort of maximum benefit of these communities? And particularly, Catholic immigrant communities have done this for for a long time. Uh, they've they've sort of formed these associations where they pool their money, uh, particularly revolving around maybe a, a local Catholic church back in their communities of origin, uh, and they they sort of throw this money at certain projects, which often in those cases tend to be maybe for the beautification of the local church or uh, maybe the improvement in a town square or something. Uh, But I think what surprised me is I hadn't read anything, not in academic circles really, nor in the media, about uh, what Protestant communities or evangelical communities were doing, if if anything, uh, that that maybe looked similar. So that's what sort of sparked this quest to look into this. And when I 
kind of began to stumble upon a, just a surprisingly large number of majority immigrant churches that were that were sort of pioneering these projects back in their communities of origin. So you in particular wanted to focus on Latin America, but is this a Latin American immigrant phenomena? Mm, that's only? a good. It's a good question. Yeah, uh, I think initially we looked pretty broadly, and as sort of the scope of, of the activity in this space sort of dawned on me. Uh, we frankly we just realized we had to limit the scope to to Latin American churches. I will say, or I, I'll say Latino churches, uh, Hispanic churches in the U.S., there is a key difference, I think. Immigrant communities are not monolithic. They're all very different, right? An immigrant church of majority Nigerian people uh, have very different stories and very different journeys for how they came here and why they're in the United States than a, than maybe a predominantly Hispanic congregation. And what seemed to be key and most interesting to me about the missions efforts at these Latino churches was that the majority of these churches are very blue collar, very working class churches. Um, in many cases, you know, every church that I visited, I would, would be safe to say that the majority of families in the church are probably living borderline on the poverty line. And, and yet they're their commitment, both personal and financial, to missions rivals that of many, uh, I think, uh, mainstream non-immigrant churches in the United States, uh, which was just really surprising to me. So take us through what that looks like. You know, we're, I think those of us in, I don't know, I don't want to call them, I'll just say non-immigrant churches are, are sometimes used to a pastor going up and deciding that they're going to make a campaign, you know, and they want people to give for a particular drive or initiative. I, I believe I've been to a couple churches that had actually like a mission Sunday, right? And so they were trying to get people specifically focused around giving for that cause at that time. What does it look like here? So I, I think a key characteristic of, of missions efforts in almost all of these churches is that they're very relationally based. So kind of like the the father-son duo that we lead the story with, you know, these are these are people who have most often deep familial connections back to uh, ministry or churches uh, back in their country of origin. And if not familial, they have deep friendships internationally back to their countries of origin. So uh, they build these ministries right along family lines. It's the same sort of line, sort of family lines that they might have used to send money back home to support family members, just help them pay basic bills. They sort of build on that and expand on that to to build ministries. So a typical scenario would be you have uh, you have someone with a deep passion to do something back in their community of origin, so they rally members of the church around them. It, it might be the pastor of the church or it might be a lay member of the church that gathers a group of people together. They, they pool their resources to do anything from funding a child sponsor program to um, funding after-school programs for kids in this community of origin, uh, nutrition programs. Uh, in many ways, the, the missions programs themselves and the sort of evangelism component of these programs look very similar to, to missions programs that you and I might be familiar with from sort of non-immigrant churches, but they are almost entirely lay-led and driven almost entirely along sort of relationship lines. So one question that a person with institutional background might ask is, so here's all this money just coming and going to various and sundry places. What's what's the accountability structure there? Because we all know that money can be easily misused and misappropriated. In uh, many of these cases, because you're dealing with missions outside of, of formal sort of legacy denominational structures, the money tends to be sent sort of along a personal transmission line. So it might be that uh, the pastor of the church sends the money to the, the pastor of a church back in this in uh, in the host country, and then uh, there then it's up to the pastor to do the right thing and and you know use this money 
in purposes that they, in the ways they said they would. So they would probably say that the accountability is, it's within the congregation. There, there probably is opportunity for deceit in some of those cases. I'd, I wouldn't say that anyone, it was not a concern that anyone expressed to me in, in the reporting for this okay. story, but I'm sure it's there. Yeah, well, it was sort of a leading question because it yeah. strikes me yeah. as that if much of the donations are done through family and friend structures, there's kind of an implicit accountability structure there. Although we've all heard stories of friends or family betraying other friends, but I think there's something natural and powerful about that accountability structure that that can't be beat in a lot of ways. Kind of going along the same lines as Mark, I think about a lot of foreign NGOs that work in other countries, oftentimes they have to supply you know, metrics of success and do annual reports here in the U.S. to kind of show how they're spending their money and what they're really succeeding at. Is there some way or metric that you found that success is being measured in these initiatives or projects? One of the things that was most surprising to me in reporting the story was that uh, the pastors and the ministry leaders at these churches are very much aware of the same challenges around dependency and around effectiveness of their missions that uh, that non-immigrant churches are are increasingly becoming aware of, right? And in some ways, they feel they feel these challenges acutely, more acutely than people who might not have cultural connections back to these these host communities. In many cases, these are sort of breadwinners who who have been, in, in our case, in the United States for a long time, who have been supporting folks back home for a long time. And uh, they, maybe more than anyone, know what it's like to be, uh, I mean, th- I, I think they would say, asked for handouts, right? And so when when it comes to designing and running a missions program, they they do seem to bring the sensibility to it of really wanting to make sure what they're doing is effective. And in many of the interviews that I did, you saw them questioning that. You saw them asking very open questions about, well, we used to do things this way, uh, but we've really started thinking critically about it, and we we think we're going to do things a different way now because it is becoming clear to us that we we need to change our strategy. So I don't know that uh, you know many of these churches you, you're dealing with on average fairly low levels of of education. You know, it's it's not like the pastor's been through uh, seven semesters of missiology classes and and and, and international aid. You know education. So I don't know that they would use terms like metrics, but it does. there does seem to be a sensibility around wanting to make sure that what they're doing is actually working. Yeah, that issue of dependency also relates to family structure. I mean, many, many parents in the United States uh, have uh, children who have either quit college or come back from college and can't seem to get their life together. And those parents have to deal with the dependency issue at some point as well. They want to help and help as much as they can, but they recognize at some point their help is not being helpful. Absolutely. So it doesn't surprise me that this is a tension that uh, these these groups feel. Absolutely. And I think another tension that's there, which another thing that really is striking about all this, is that each of these churches is acutely aware of what, they did seem to be very self-aware of, of what will happen when the next generation sort of rises up. Will they take the baton of this missions effort that we've developed? Uh, because as is really typical in in immigrant communities and has been for centuries, often the second and third and the fourth generations over the course of time, their their ties to the to their country of origin diminish. And so too does their interest in sort of being involved in programs back there. And so this question of sustainability is really front of mind for them because they are aware of if, if we don't do something to sort to, to sort of make these programs self-sustaining, uh, we, we're not sure if we can count on the upcoming generations to, to keep it going. So in the piece... You made this suggestion, you know, that immigrant-driven models could signify the future of missions in North America, which is a pretty bold claim. And I'm wondering what type of, like, trends are people looking at that might suggest that that could be the case? 
a number of the experts that I spoke to suggested that that what what we're seeing in these types of churches really is a glimpse of where missions more broadly in the United States is already heading. So in particular, this this idea of moving away from doing missions through formal structured legacy organizations and instead pursuing missions that are more relationally oriented, that are more informal, that are more sort of independent of of larger missions hierarchy. Uh, this and you know one expert I spoke with said you can look at this as a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, you have you have non-immigrant churches, wealthy non-immigrant churches that by by just by way of their wealth and their sort of independent power are are choosing to go things alone anyway and, and do do missions as they sort of on their own terms right a, apart from sort of legacy institutions and then on the other end of this spectrum you have uh, relatively poor immigrant uh, congregations that are also choosing to do missions sort of on their own but for very different reasons and in very different ways and that's not a that's not a values judge statement on either end of that spectrum but just looking at different reasons why why churches of all types are choosing to uh, sort of have a more independent approach to missions. Yeah, the church that I went to growing up, which certainly had a number of immigrants in it, but I wouldn't have necessarily called it an immigrant church. We had relationships with specific congregations in Vietnam, and we had another relationship with a bunch of, um, with the summer camp, I guess, in Mexico that the junior high group would go and visit every single year. But I don't think of those as being necessarily affiliated with some like larger institution. Those were church-to-church connections that we fostered. Yeah, I tend to go to upper-middle-class, frankly, white congregations all my life. And to think about it in that context, when, when churches like those think of taking up a mission project, so let's say we want to do something in Haiti, we usually try to find some institutional connection with the denomination we're in. Then we try to get to know the people in Haiti who are in need in one sort or another. Then we are both raising funds and trying to answer questions about accountability and dependency. And it feels so, that feels so foreign compared to this model, which is, oh, my brother is in Haiti. He's trying to start a church. Hey, everybody, can we help him? Those are two different worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think in some ways it's sort of, uh, it's very closely related to just the broader, uh, shift away from denominationalism and towards more towards independent churches, period, right? So uh, in a non-immigrant church, there might be a lot of similarities. It, it might, in fact, be my, you know, if I go to a, a majority Anglo church, it might be, well, my Anglo brother is starting a ministry in Haiti, and um, that ministry is not affiliated with my denomination or any denomination, but I, I know my brother and I trust him, and so we are going to rally our church around this ministry. And so that, that would be another example of a purely relationally driven uh, minist- missions effort outside of any sort of legacy structures, but that nonetheless the church feels is extremely valuable. Before we kind of move on with more of these bigger picture questions, Andy, you met lots of interesting people while you're doing this reporting. And if you could maybe tell the story of one or two of them and how they kind of illustrate what we've been talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. So we talk about a, f- a father and a son, Valentin Salamanca at is the father, and Mario is his son. Valentin is a pastor in El Salvador who came to the United States years ago, worked here for a number of years for various reasons, health-related, returned to El Salvador and decided to start uh, church planning ministry back in El Salvador. Uh, his son, Mario, took over. So Valentin had been pastoring a church in the United States, in Los Angeles. His son, Mario, takes over this church for him and continues to grow this this congregation. Mario and Valentin have this really robust uh, uh, ministry partnership back and forth between El Salvador and the United States. And El Salvador, as as some of our listeners might know, is a pretty difficult place to operate now. Right now, uh, the situation with gang-related violence uh, and just overall law, lawlessness is, is very difficult. Uh, and it was a situation that directly impacted uh, Valentin, as it has many 
many people involved in international ministry there. Uh, Valentin was kidnapped and he was he was threatened multiple times. And the situation became volatile enough that they just decided as a family, the father and the son, that something had to change about the way they were doing ministry. This this very traditional sort of structure of doing missions in El Salvador uh, just wasn't going to work anymore in this context. They needed to find a way to operate that was I think this sounds bad, but a little more under the table, if you will, a little less noticeable to a little less visible to to maybe gangs who are keeping an eye on things. And frankly, a model of missions that required less money, right? Because money was what money, money is primarily the thing that, that drew negative attention. So it was fascinating to talk with them about their process of completely reimagining what missions might look like. And so uh, the structure that we come up with now is this is this very low cost model based entirely on relationships run largely through women in their church who uh, who have these sort of mentor relationships that that cross international boundaries. Just a fascinating example of how a church has, has rethought what it, what it means if, if we want to do missions in a really hot context and in a really dangerous context, how, how could we how could we do it? So they're, they're a great example. And then the other, you know, I, th- I think someone who just represents what's so fascinating about this whole trend. There was a man I, I spoke with who um, grew up in Mexico in a border town. And he, he told me the story of growing up as a boy, he lived across the street from a church, and uh, a Catholic church. And this church would bring in missions teams all the time, year round. And the, the teams, you know, it was a very standard thing. They would come and they would do soccer. They'd play soccer. They would uh, do VBSs. They would like give out candy. And he said, I didn't, I, I didn't know Jesus and I, w- and I had no interest in knowing Jesus, but I loved going to these, I loved getting candy and playing soccer. We always, lo- we looked forward to it every year when these missions teams came from, from the United States. Uh, but it wasn't until he immigrated to the United States, eventually got involved in a church and he came to faith, had a relationship with Christ. And, and now as a part of his church, he's going back to that same town where he, where he grew up and is, and is leading missions, missions trips there. And he, uh, he just, he just kind of has this pride in how, um, he said, you know, I didn't, I didn't come to Christ because of a missions trip, but I, but he's, he's so proud now of the fact that he feels his church is uniquely equipped to do ministry, uh, in an effective way back in his hometown. And, and I, th- I think that was a, that was characteristic of, of all these churches, they were very proud of of what they feel God is doing through their churches. Yeah, those are powerful illustrations. It gets us from the abstract to the particular. There's some really concrete, important Christian ministry going on as a result of these, these uh, efforts. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. At the top of this conversation, we talked about um, our own country's immigration system, and I'm just wondering how that plays a role in how missions are being done. Yeah, I think it plays, if not a direct role, a very indirect role, right? I mean, simply at a functional level, the 
the ability of of immigration policies to restrict or not to restrict travel a- across borders has a has a real impact. Uh, many of the people I spoke with are deeply involved in their missions efforts at their church, and they would be more so if they could travel freely back to their countries of origins. But they can't because their documentation status might be a little bit uh, a little bit complicated. And I think just more broadly. America's posture towards immigrants dramatically affects the ability of these churches to do missions because when when an immigrant community feels that it is at risk or that it's threatened, you know, I, I think just human nature says they have to turn inward a little bit more and they focus more on, on protecting themselves. Uh, and that's energy that they're not spending focusing outward on missions. So when you went to Los Angeles to talk to many of these immigrants, I from what I recall, that coincided with the time where we started to see more information about ICE being out there. I've, I've read multiple stories of pastors who have been either detained um, or at risk of deportation. And in, in some instances, there were other stories of Christians who were not Latino being deported as well. Um, and I'm just wondering if you saw any of those concerns about ICE come out in your... ICE is what? Immigration Customs Enforcement. Yeah, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Yeah, that, for sure. I mean, I you know, I didn't, I didn't see anything anecdotally, but... Uh, all the pastors I spoke with were, were very open that it's it's a major concern. It's a top of mind concern for their churches. Um, they're, I mean, like we've heard before, their church members. Many of them are scared. They don't know what they don't know what to expect. Many of them have stopped going out as much. Uh, he's so the the pastoral role of a pastor has become very important for many of these pastors of immigrant churches. I think at the same time, the pastors I spoke with, they're all trying to walk a line and, and find balance to encourage their encourage their church members to <laughs> to still respect authorities to uh, you know to still be active members of their community even though they're in times of uncertainty that ultimately to place the, I mean they're encouraging them to place their trust in God and in God's work in their lives and not in you know the cultural whims of the day Andy what do you think that existing missions ministries can learn from these immigrant run ones and by existing I mean long-standing existing Obviously, they won't exist. Yeah. The experts that I spoke with kind of talked about a few perhaps lessons for the broader missions community. One is, uh, and this isn't a lesson, but it's just a reality. They're just very interested in broader awareness. They, they, they want legacy missions institutions to know that this is happening and, uh, and, that, it's, and that it's a growing reality. I think second, you know, a, a phrase that many of the, of the experts and the pastors that I spoke with used is they, they would say, we didn't, you know, immigrants didn't get the memo. We never got the memo that you needed to have money to do missions. Uh, I mean, many of their missions programs are built, I mean, literally on spare change from the couch cushions funding models. Uh, people who are out there on the streets um, selling tamales to, to raise money uh, to send to send and support these programs. Because these are families, like I said, that just have a, a, virtually no disposable income. Um, so it, it kind of, it really, it kind of undermines the idea of that, you know, the kind of the stereotypical idea of the $3,000 missions trip. That's just not really an option for these churches. And so I think what a lot of the thinkers that I spoke with said was there, there's major lessons to be learned about the ability to do missions on virtually no budget that much of the United States, I think, can learn from these churches. And then finally, I think there are definitely lessons, as as I alluded to earlier, there are lessons that are emerging from these immigrant churches as they are re- reconsidering and con- constantly sort of allowing their missions programs to evolve. There are lessons to be learned from them about what are ways that they are arriving at sustainability and what are ways they're thinking about changing missions to sort of keep up with the times that uh, were probably valuable for legacy organizations to, to take heed of. Yeah, one criticism that was marshaled in this article by the experts that I've heard elsewhere in, in other con- other similar contexts is they are very wary of uh, wealthy, privileged American Christians 
wanting to reach out and bring bring their help less developed people. And I'm, it leaves me confused as a white, privileged, wealthy person. It's like they're saying, we don't want you to come and help. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So it leaves me like, well, okay, what if I can't bring my expertise or my wealth to bear, if you find that offensive, what can I bring to bear? What should I bring to bear? Yeah, that's a very valid question. And I think it probably is a matter of perspective. If uh, if you're the pastor of a small struggling church trying to develop a missions program, uh, I, you know, I don't know that you, if, and if someone offered to come and give you a million dollars, I'm not sure that you would necessarily turn it down, right? You might be very <laughs> grateful for that. Uh, at the same time, from sort of a higher level distance analysis of the whole thing uh, as an academic or 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 sort of a missions thinker, uh, certainly it's understandable that you might you might look at this and ask, well, would that be a good thing? You know, would that sort of uh, begin to eat away at some of the very things that make this movement so so unique, so robust, so sustainable, whatnot? Uh, professor, I spoke with Juan Martinez at um, at Fuller, who's a leading thinker in this area, he kind of, he commented, you know, I don't know that these churches need uh, millions of dollars because they're, I don't know that they could handle that kind of that money. Uh, and, and he didn't say that it wasn't a critical way. He said, but it would be fascinating if someone, uh, if an anonymous donor slipped in their pews one day and just dropped a thousand dollar check and designated it for their missions program to see what would happen. Because in fact, he believes because of how, how lean and mean these missions programs are, they could take that thousand dollars and maybe do a whole lot more with it than uh, maybe a non-immigrant church. So I think there's definitely a balance to be, to be found, not unlike any, any, uh, you know, charity effort. The fact of the matter is I'm very extremely impressed with what's going on in this, this world. I'm extremely impressed when Churches in other continents become the, are led by indigenous uh, leaders, uh, but it does make one wonder, so what am I supposed to do now? Okay, that's great. We're having this ground from the ground up, and uh, it maybe it, may we're in a period where those of us who've been used to doing that need to figure out what we can do now, because in, at some level, this, gr- this group has figured out how to help themselves without our help, and in a way that's quite remarkable and ingenious. But it does seem to me that I still have a responsibility to do something given the privileges I have. So that's the tension I live with. Yeah, that's a great great question. (laughs) (laughs) Mark just has his helpful instinct, right? Well, I think most, uh, most Christians and most churches want to help people who are need help. I think that's sort of a common, and yet uh, it's difficult to know how to do that well in this day and age. Uh, so all, all of this this category of missions falls into the broader category of diaspora missions, right? Which is what missiologists talk about. Diaspora missions encompass everything from missions among refugee populations in our own backyards to, to what these types of churches are doing to missions among d- refugee populations in Europe and, and everything in between. So I think what diaspora missions thinkers would say is there very well might be ways that non-immigrant Christian communities can help these churches, but the the people to pose that question to would be the leaders of those non-immigrant yeah, churches. Yeah, so it occurs to me that one of the ways to bridge that those two worlds would be instead of thinking about what we can do in Puebla, Mexico, what we can do in Puebla, Mexico, sure. we might go to the local Hispanic church and we might build start building relationships there. We might have a picnic together. We might share pulpits. We might sit in each other's missions committees or whatever and just get to know each other. And over a course of time, it will become we will become friends 
In other words, we'll be using that relational model to build uh, a network that can go beyond those two churches to overseas. So, And that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, again, Juan Martinez at Fuller, point he drives home a lot is he, he characterizes these missions as, as what he calls missions from the periphery to the periphery. So in, in less academic terms, what he talks about is that most Americans tend to think of missions as uh, something that happens from the center of power, uh, that, that the people in the center of power do with or do for or do to people that are on the edges of power, right? He's saying what's unique about this is that these are people who are already themselves on the very fringes of power who are doing ministry with people who are on the fringes of power. The nature of the difference between those two kind of paradigms uh, requires us to ask different questions and, and think about what, even the very question, how can I help? Uh, I'm hopefully one forgive me for putting words in his mouth, even the question of how can I help is sort of itself a fraught question. He, he might, might encourage us to even challenge our very own notions of what does it even mean to help. I know we're getting, <laughs> we're getting real deep here, Mark. I know. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece called When the Saints Go Marching into Cuba in Myanmar. And this piece was written partially because it seemed at the time that both Myanmar and Cuba were going to become far more open to Westerners than they had previously been. I guess Myanmar and the world. Um, and so how the, what would that mean for missions? And so I kind of open the story with this example of a group called Co-Mission, um, which is when 83 Western ministries partnered with the Russian Ministry of Education to basically teach biblical ethics um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And they didn't talk to the, any of the Orthodox church leaders before this. And it ended up going relatively poorly in terms of how it was received. Um, and there was a lot of just like larger divisions um, within the church that happened as a result of it. Um, and then we just talked to folks that work in Cuba. Um, there was one quote in the story by Octavio Javier Esqueda, who is at Talbot School of Theology. And he said, in Cuba, they call people who come and start new ministries, Christopher Columbus. So there's Sometimes this, at least in, when I talked to the folks in Cuba, there was the sense of we have been doing ministry for a long time. So I'm sure you can be helpful in some way. But Yeah. No, I experienced that personally in Mexico City when I was a associate pastor there in charge of youth ministry. And one summer I ran into a young man who was who had come to Mexico because the Lord led him there to reach out to English-speaking people who were living in Mexico City, which is precisely what our church was doing and about a half a dozen other churches. And it just struck me as just amazing that he would do this without checking into what's already going on <laughs> and maybe how he could supplement it. But he had just assumed that no one was doing it or no one was doing it right, and so he had to do it. So I get that offensiveness. It's not. I don't think that's uncommon. I no. think for sure. Well, just thinking about a uh, a typical suburban American church that doesn't have any or very few immigrants in its midst. I mean, what what what's the takeaway for them in this story? In this whole issue, in fact, like we covered, like we talked a little bit about already. I think one takeaway, and this uh, this this is not always the most exciting takeaway, is simply awareness that this is happening. You know, for me personally, I th I think a takeaway was that there there is a there's a pre prevalent narrative in the United States right now that that the immigrant community is this community that is sort of uh, perpetually in need of help or in need of legislative protection and whatnot. And the and I think these they're victims, things, they're pure victims. Yeah, and I think these things are certainly there is definitely truth to that. But I there, there's another part of the story that isn't. In fact, immigrant Christians in, in many of these communities are doing some amazing things, and there is robust ministry happening. So in some ways, if there's a case to be made for supporting these communities, it 
it might not necessarily be because we need to protect them as victims. It might be because uh, God is at work doing some pretty transformative things through them. And as the church, that seems to be something that we perhaps should be paying attention to and taking a keen interest in in whatever ways that might look like. Cool. Thanks, Andy, for joining us to chat about this reminder. You can read our story by going to our show notes later or read Andy's story in this case. And you can agree or disagree always on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash ctpodcasts. We are on Twitter at ctpodcasts. All right. Now is the time for precious moments where I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and also if and where they can be found on the internet. All right, Mark, all you. Okay, well, it won't happen till breakfast tomorrow, but I'm going to, speaking of Latin America, meet up with two friends who work for Habitat for Humanity in Costa Rica, and we see them about once a year. It's one of those type of friendships where you, you're, you're together for just a few hours every year, and then when you see each other again a year later, it's like you just pick up the conversation. It's just so natural and fun, so I'm really looking forward to that, except that it's at 6.30 in the morning tomorrow. So just shows you how valuable that relationship is yeah, for them. Huh? So it is, uh, that will bring me joy tomorrow morning. How long, how, where did you meet them? They lived in the Wheaton area for a while, and that's where we got to know them in a s- small group setting. And just one of those couples that we just connected and uh, kids connected. We've taken vacations with them. Yeah. Tori and Lisa Nelson doing great work for uh, Habitat in, in Costa Rica. Yeah. All right. Where are you online? People can find me. Well, I've just resurrected my Facebook page, so they could try to find me there. Oh, you're going to invite people to friend you on <laughs> Facebook, I see. Maybe. So there's that. Just look up Mark Galley. There's no other Mark Galley that I know of on, on that. But week to week, the thing I, one of the things I most enjoy doing is the Galley Report. It's a series of links and commentary on those links on stuff I've been reading that week. And you can find that at uh, ChristianityToday slash, uh, ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report. Galley is spent, spelt G-A-L-L-I, by the way, not like a ship's galley. Andy? So this summer, uh, my family and I, we made a commitment to not travel anywhere, not doing any big, giant family vacations. Uh, we just wanted to be home. We wanted to work on putting down roots here in our community and sort of having a stable calendar for our two kids. And uh, it has been... Uh, a really good decision. What what's ended up happening is that all the relatives we would have gone to visit have just decided to come visit us, which is really ideal if you have young children uh, to spare yourself the difficulties of traveling. So yeah, we've had visits uh, from a lot of folks and we're getting ready over the next couple of weeks to have visits from uh, my sister-in-law and from some of our dearest, dearest friends who live in Baltimore. So we're really excited about that. Um, looking forward to that. And you've also gotten to like kind of visit Chicago with them as the excuse, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we are uh, members of the Shed Aquarium now, which is pretty cool awesome, thing. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I've been a member of anything in my life. Didn't you say uh, you get like eight free adults? Yeah, you can bring your yeah. entire tribe. Um, yeah, and our kids, my daughter particularly loves fish. She goes crazy for fish. So it's a... Uh, it's a good no, deal. if she ever wants to go fishing with me, she's welcome to. Absolutely, she, uh, eighteen month old, twenty month old okay. children have the patience for that. Indeed. So, <laughs> are you on Twitter? I am. Yes, Morgan. As you as you well know, I have returned to Twitter after a very long hiatus. Uh, I think I'm up to. I think I've got like fifteen tweets now or something. So, <laughs> if you want to find out what I might may or it's, may not tweet in the it, next week, it's part of the price of being in journalism. Absolutely, you can find me at. Andy R. Olson, O-L-S-E-N. Cool. My precious moment, reluctantly, French class. 
Mark was accusing me earlier of knowing lots of random things. But actually, I didn't know this thing last night when I was doing my French homework. So we had to label the French regions on the map for our homework. And until 2016, there were 22 different regions in France. And then they passed a law and now there are only 13. And I was like, that is insane. Like, I can't even imagine if we went from, you know, 50 states to 25 and how people would feel about that getting stripped away and getting merged with other states. And not all of the regions were merged. So, you know, if you were part of a merged region, you might feel kind of terrible that... Yours doesn't exist anymore, but other people's does. Anyway, that was really interesting. So, and I think tonight we're going to have a bigger lesson about French culture and the different regions of it. And this is something that I've like pretty much stayed very ignorant of. I've never been to France. I think we have a future show and how to fit 48 hours of activity into 24 hours or 14 days a week into seven days. <laughs> and our main guest and expert should be Morgan, Morgan. Lee. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I find out you're learning French. <laughs> I feel so small when I'm next to you, even though I'm much taller than you. Mark! You're incredible. Your energy <laughs> levels are just a... St- do you, uh, maybe, do you sleep? You have to sleep, unfortunately. I tried, but... Yeah, Morgan's life is one of those... You see her and you blink and you're like, Morgan, what did you do when I blinked? And she's like, I learned to play drums. <laughs> if only... I just like like learning everything. I always get like upset that I can't learn more about stuff, which is... I'm going to credit that to homeschooling. I'll All say right. that. well... You're a very impressive woman. Thank you. Not my French skills, not at this moment. Okay, well, someday. Someday. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. As a reminder, you can get this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to our producers, Cray Allred and Richard Clark. Please show your love for the show by either subscribing to our magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen, or you can do that by writing us a very, very, very kind review. Obviously, only kind ones on Apple Podcasts, which is the best way to go about doing that. Or you can do both of those. Yeah. And speaking of million dollar donations, we are a nonprofit. So <laughs> we would be one of those organizations that wouldn't blink if someone wanted to write us a check for that. Okay. Just make that clear. Pretty sure Andy said a thousand dollars and then you bumped it to a million. <laughs> All right, guys. See you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms. CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.